trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could join us today, and I'm especially glad to have my friend Keith Kelsch back on the show for me. Keith is uh, Keith is kind of a fixture in Southern Utah, and Keith, I, I would, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways I can introduce you. You're an author, you're a businessman, you were my neighbor, this is where you and I first met, but uh, more importantly, you are a guy who is actively looking for solutions. I know there's a lot of people can pinpoint, yeah, there's problems all around us. You are s- seriously addressing some of these solutions. Tell me about the meeting you have coming up tonight at the Washington City Library. Yeah, it's just fun. It's We call it Awakening and Renaissance. I'm going to wake people up and then hit them with uh, a renaissance. We just don't think that great things can happen beyond our wildest imaginations. Well, they can, because what we can do together is far more powerful than what we can do alone. I'm just going to try to <laughs> hit people right between the eyes and right at the heart at the same time. So, Well, and... Okay, I'm I'm trying to compare this to typical politics is there's a lot of uh, spending, there's a lot of drama, but ultimately it comes down to an argument over who gets to coerce whom to do something else. When you talk about leadership, Keith, you're talking about a kind of leadership that is much more authentic, it's much more rooted in the people and respect for each other's rights. Talk to me about uh, you know what, what you are accomplishing, not just with this meeting tomorrow night, but or to tonight, rather, but uh, within, you know, you, the larger movement that, that you're working within the community. Okay, you've, you've heard um, a lot on the, on the conservative right talk about taking responsibility, okay, taking personal responsibility. But what we really don't understand is how powerful that is. Uh, there's people on the left, and you and I know them. I have <laughs> three or four degrees from major universities on the left coast. And they, they want to call a lot of people on the right just selfish, just constant barrage of blaming the entire right for being selfish and for whatever else they want to call them for. But the, the, the problem is, is that we didn't do anything to create the selfishness, but we're not doing anything to solve it. And so we just get labeled this and labeled that. And what I've realized that there is a high road. And the high road basically is, is two beliefs that actually support each other. And I'll be talking about those beliefs tomorrow. But those two beliefs have a lot to do with freedom and what is basically good in humanity. And when those two beliefs come together, there's no stopping a culture. There's no stopping people from doing wonderful, powerful things. But we're being dragged down by some really hideous beliefs that that we're born selfish, that we're born sinners, or, or, or this or that. And these beliefs drag us down. And then what's sad is those, those that are really selfish call the other side selfish. <laughs> and, and those that are sinners call the other side sinners. And this is what's really destroying America right now. And we don't realize it. And so we're in this nasty, nasty battle. And nobody's taking the high road. Well, the only high road that exists or that is left over for Americans is local. And what we do locally is really the the high road that we all have to take. Because then you don't get caught up into the globalism and the Klaus schnobs of the world and all the the, the nitpicking and and 
battling for constantly taking place on a global level. No, we don't even have to take part in that. We don't even have to get all sweaty and bothered by it. This is one of the things I have consistently liked about your approach, Keith, is you are not just, you know, hammering another political solution. Or we just, you know, if we all vote hard enough and on this person or that party or this issue, um, you are talking about decentralizing and solving problems at the lowest possible level. And that's, that's something yeah. that's kind of gone out of fashion here of late, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's way out of fashion. But if you look back in America, we had what was called the Transcendental Movement, you know, Emerson and Thoreau and whatnot. They all talked about self-reliance. But we don't talk about – we have a misunderstanding about self-reliance. We think it's, oh, I'm, I'm a prepper and I'm okay. I'm in my cave and so I'm, I'm self-reliant. No, you're not. Uh, you're just avoiding – the, the social responsibility to really buck up and help one another and, and build a better culture. That's real self-reliance. Self-reliance is an American mindset that says, you know, you know, we can, we can build this on our own. We, we don't need your help. Look at the history of the Golden Gate Bridge and all the local farmers that came together to build that. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. We don't, we think that we need authority and approval and, and funding. No, we don't. We don't, we don't need any of that for what we can do on our own. We've lost that energy. We've lost what it means to be an American. And, and I have a book I just published called The High Road, The Future of American Greatness. And I'm telling you, it's not what you think. It's not what everyone thinks it's going to be. It's completely different. We've lost touch of that. But more importantly, we don't have a vision for the future. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stress a lot of things that we've got to stand on the founders of of their shoulders and not just talk with them face to face, literally stand on their shoulders and see the future that they couldn't see. That's our responsibility. That's what we have to do. I know that means that we (laughs) mean a lot. (laughs) That shakes up some people, Keith. And and there's a time in my life it would have shaken me up, but I, I really believe what the founders gave us in terms of the declaration, the constitution, and, and what was, I think a very, it was a workable, if not flawed system of government, but that respected the people's rights for, for most of its existence. It's, it's a little out of balance now, but you know, um, I think they gave us a terrific starting point and, and I was slow to come around to this, but you know, to me, it makes sense. If you guys can improve on this, improve on it, you know? Well, it's not, it's not It's not even taking anything away from what they've done for us. It's that they did something on the federal level, but they didn't, they didn't do anything on the local level. Absolutely nothing. That's our responsibility. We just, like a, a housing development person comes in and puts in a housing development. Same old garbage that everyone else puts in, okay? And so you look at cities and city governments and county structures. They just are carbon, carbon copies of the adjoining county or the next city over. And we just keep duplicating the same old stuff. And we, we centralize power and we centralize power. And we create more bureaucracies and we limit voice, we limit access. And as a result, you know, if you really want to run for office, you have to be a vanilla personality that, you know, you appeal to everybody, but you have no vision, you have no guts, you have no spine. And this is what we're facing. We're facing the election of people that literally will cave at yep. any moment's notice of a, of a larger pressure over them. Man, I couldn't agree more. Well, and Keith, again, this isn't just pointing out the problem. You're actively talking solutions 
And tell me, who needs to be at this meeting tonight? Anybody who's bothered, if you got an itch that you need to scratch, scratch, and you're just frustrated, I'm, I promise you, we will ignite that. But we've launched an organization called Local Commonwealth, and it is a business networking organization. But we have it's headless, if you can imagine that. Uh, where we go, one one goes all. It's basically that spirit of camaraderie, that spirit of common consent, that culture of consent. And we meet every Thursday at nine fifteen at the Washington, you know, Chamber. Uh, a building where they allow us to, to be in there for free. We really appreciate the Washington City Chamber. It's right next to Staley's Pharmacy. We meet every Thursday at 9.15. We'd love to see you there. If not, come to our uh, Awakening and Renaissance. It's going to be every month, first Wednesday of every month, and tomorrow night, actually tonight, because this is on their air, uh, at 6.30 at the Washington City uh, Library. Love to see you there. Come. And, and, and I promise you, you will be stimulated and inspired and you'll have hope for our culture and hope for our country. Also, you're going to find that to, you are certainly not alone, even though there's there's, no. a, there's a whole lot of effort being directed at people who are looking for solutions to, to make them feel like they're marginalized. No, you know, shut up. Get back in line. Go along with, you know, where, where the crowd is going. Um, so don't right. take don't take the path of least resistance, but you'll be happy to find out at least when you're on. When you're on a good path, there, there are plenty of people there with you who see what's going on. And Keith, I, I appreciate you bringing don't, them together. We don't, we don't know how to see eye to eye anymore. We've lost that. We've lost what it means to have real open discourse. What's that our supposed to mean? State, I'm kidding. I'm just teasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our, our state's divided between keep my voice and protect my vote. I'm saying no, we need them both and together and in the same room. That way, if you're going to make a vote, I get to challenge you on that vote, and then you get to challenge me on my course of action, and we do this before we even vote, and we do it unanimously, and we stretch our wills so that we actually reach consensus in a small group, in a modular structure. That's what should be happening in our communities, not this divided left-right garbage where I can never go to a room and talk with a person on the left, and they never come into my room and talk with me on a conservative. That's that's nuts. That that was never a planned operation by the founders. In fact, they actually hated the party system. Okay, so Washington City Library. That is tonight, six thirty p.m. And Keith, I, I hope it's. Uh, I hope you have to go get more chairs. I hope so too. <laughs> Thanks so much for being my guest. You too. Thanks, Brian. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm very happy to uh, welcome my friend Tyler Peterson. He is uh, my guest for this segment. And Tyler, first of all, I'm going to ask you, if you want to just basically tell us who you are and what you do, but then we're going to talk about something very specific that I've seen you do that that left a very positive impression on me. But uh, for folks who are meeting you for the first time, who are you and what makes you tick? Well, uh, I'm a family man. Um, I love my country. Um, I don't know. I, I, I really kind of got involved in the politics back in 2002. And that was just a point in my life where I started questioning everything, everything from religion to politics and anything in between. And it's, it's really kind of helped me 
uh, ground myself to reality and help me to understand, you know, a little bit more about current events and the world as, as we see it. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to brag on you where, you know, your modesty wouldn't let you go here. Um, I'll tell I'll tell my listener, um, Tyler's a stand-up guy. Tyler is a can-do kind of person. You know, I I know uh, that we all we all want to know people who are kind of like MacGyver in their own way. Tyler's that guy. <laughs> so with, <laughs> with that set up, I something you did when you and I first met that that has caused me to take you seriously, or at least to take you as a person who is um, stable and steady and, and, and has actually put some thought into life, is you shared with me a list that you had written out of things for which you stood. And, and the first thing I want to ask you is, what prompted you to to make a list of something like this? Well, first of all, thank you for the, the compliment. Um, I guess that was probably about two years ago that we uh, first met. And um, the, the list was important to me. I, I don't know exactly when it started or, or necessarily why, um, but it was important to me just to have a, a, a foundation on which I can build my life. And it's been helpful throughout my life to understand really what's going on, um, you know, and it's helped me kind of filter the current events or to to filter the lies or the deceit or, uh, you know, current events, other things going on to make sure that, okay, am I I getting distracted? Am I getting off course? Um, And to really understand what's important in my life and what I have control over. I I think people intend to be dialed in on who they are and what they stand for. But I think sometimes, un- unless you have really taken the time to actively sit down, put it on paper, like take it from the abstract into a more um, tangible form, you'd be surprised at, uh, at, you know, where your heart goes when you really are put to the test of, okay, what do I stand for? What was the process like for you as, as you started making this list? Did, did you struggle with it or did it seem to... To, to call oh, it pretty easy. Uh, well, this has been a work in progress for quite some time, but for the most part, it, it, I, I'm not a writer. Um, you know, I, I write and work, and, and you know, I'm okay. I'm you know, I'm, I'm decent, but I'm not a writer by trade by any stretch of the imagination. So when I when I started putting pen to paper, and I got you know the first few bullet points and the few, first uh, few items, it just started clicking. And a lot of it just, I mean, it was, it was, came very natural. And to me, that, that just means that it's, it's authentic, um, you know, that they really are important to me. I've had a similar experience where I was told to um, go someplace quiet. That means without electronics and just sit down and, and try to think about uh, all the things in your life that you value, that you would want to be defined by, you know, if someone were trying to summarize, well, you know, who exactly are you? And it was like you. It, starting out was kind of like, okay, I'm you know, listing a few things here. But the more I started to think, the more I started to dig, the more, I don't know, inspired it, it felt as to uh, things that I hadn't really thought about, you know, deeply. And I'm curious, if you don't mind, I know some of the things that you wrote down are actually, I, I think I, I would call them sacred, and so they're really not for public consumption. But there was a lot of stuff that you wrote down that I think most anybody could could relate to as going, oh, yeah, I, w- I would stand for that too. Would you mind sharing a few examples with us of some of the things that jumped out, maybe some of those that surprised you? Sure. 
Um, I mean, the list is pretty long, but, you know, I'll, I'll try to go through and pick through some of the ones that uh, might be more relevant to the listeners. Um, so the, the first one is, I believe it's my responsibility to become the best version of my, myself that I can be. You know, we, we're all, we all need to, <laughs> we're all here on earth for a reason. And uh, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And my, my wife can attest that I've got plenty of weaknesses and, um, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm trying to learn to be the best self that I can. Um, some of the others, if, if you don't mind, if I can just kind of read through some of them real quick. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that might does not make right. I believe the right thing to do is often the least popular thing to do. Um, I believe we must teach, share, and stand for truth and shine light in dark places. I believe personal principle and discipline are more powerful and impactful than public policy. Um, wow. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot. I mean, this list, it, I, think, I think a lot of people would be surprised at just how many things they can come up with. They did me anyway. I, I just... I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, I, I believe the Constitution, I, you know, and the, the principles it teaches, and, and you know, and, and some religious things, and, and but man, it it goes way beyond that. And having that written down is something I refer back to uh, almost weekly, and it's that regular. So. Okay, this is this is exactly why I was hoping that you would would share some of this with me. I I ask you to share this, Tyler, because I know right now there there are very few people who aren't experiencing some significant level of change in their lives, and and it may not be earth shaking stuff, but you're you know you're feeling the pinch at the gas pump, you're feeling uncertainty, and um you know what's going on around us, not just politically, but uh, you know culturally, there's a lot of stuff that's been turned on its head, and and so in the context of how knowing yourself is is a way to fortify yourself for uncertain times. Could could I get your take on how this has helped you uh, in in being you know more sure of who you are and, and what you stand for? Well, I've I've found that it's been very grounding uh, for me, but also for my family. Um, you know, we're we're faced on a consistent basis with with choices. Um, but it's been very grounding. It's given me a sense of direction and understanding. And like I mentioned earlier, it, it's really a filter um, that, that I can kind of helps me understand. You know, I don't I don't have a, a full understanding of the world events by any stretch of the imagination. But it helps me to see you know the, the BS that's going on. And it, it's been helpful for us as a family to. Uh, give us the direction in our lives that, that we need at the time. Um, if I could ask, where did you find it uh, most uh, most fruitful to sit down and do this kind of thinking? Um, I want to think that, you know, everybody's, well, I just plop down on the couch and can do it with distractions around me. Did you have to have some, some clear space in order to really um, think clearly? Well, uh, yes, but no. <laughs> Uh, the kids weren't around. I can tell you that much. It, it would have been a lot more distracting if uh, it wasn't semi-quiet. But, but I'd say a good majority of it was written in my bedroom on the floor while I was just kind of lounging around. Um, but I, I felt prompted that this is something I needed to do for myself. And and it's also something that um, as a parent, I, 
I, I try and write in a journal. I'm not very good at, at it anymore. Um, but it's it's important for me to pass this on to my kids so that they know who I am when one day, you know, dad's not around. They're going to have questions and they may may not really know or remember or might forget, uh, you know, who, who is dad? What did he stand for? What did he believe? And, and maybe why? And Ta- so that's, it's, it's been something I wanted to leave to them. Tyler, I appreciate you uh, stepping out of the comfort zone and sharing this with me and with my audience today. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure we could find something else interesting to talk about sometime in the future. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. You can visit them online at DixieChiro.com. This is Dr. Ward Wagner. And if you or someone you love are having to deal with pain, maybe you should give him a shout. This is particularly for my listeners in southern Utah. Check this out. You go to DixieCairo.com. There are a couple of specials I would like to direct your attention to. One is the $99 intro special with two treatments plus massage if you're dealing with bulging herniated discs. Or if you're dealing with neuropathy, here's a $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. And, of course, if you've had car accident injuries, Dr. Wagner is there to help you as well. DixieChiro.com. There's a link in my show notes. You can go directly. Just uh, type in DixieChiro.com. Tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. You know, even uh, even if COVID had turned out to be as deadly as the Ebola virus, lockdowns would still have been the wrong thing to do. Now, that's going to be counterintuitive for a lot of people. I might even get some pushback right now. People are shaking their heads going, what the, what the heck are you talking about, Hyde? What is this? Well, I want to share with you a commentary from Bertine Schaefer about how the lockdowns weren't a terrible idea because COVID-19 isn't a serious illness. Her point being that if enough of us don't comprehend the reasons that these lockdowns were horrific and destructive, then we're just going to be in for more of the same. Now, this is something she originally posted back in June of 2020. Let's see how this is aged. She says, I'm going to say this over and over and over again. The reason lockdowns were slash are a terrible idea is not that COVID-19 is not a very serious threat. Yes, for the vast majority of the population, it's true that it's not a very serious threat, but that's not the point. Even if COVID-19 were airborne Ebola or something even more horrifying, centralized decisions imposed from the top down by people who will never have to pay for the harm they do would still be a terrible solution. Why? Well, she says because centralized coercive decision-making is always, always, always the worst possible way to make decisions. Why? Because of the knowledge problem. If you're not familiar with that, read F.A. Hayek. No central authority can possibly have the same knowledge that thousands or millions of individuals do about their wants, their needs, and what their risk and risk tolerances are. <clears throat> and because calculation problem, meaning without private ownership and decision-making and the signals that come from that, the people making things can't know how much of what is needed or wanted. But mostly, she says, it's because no accountability 
And coercive authorities are never held accountable for their actions. That's the whole foundation of government. Well, it's okay for us to do this because, you know, we're in charge. Bertine Schaefer says, we are seeing the results of, an, of authoritarian, centralized decision-making in a crisis unfold around us in real time. From an inability to test for COVID-19 because of the CDC's monopoly on testing, to shortages of basic items due to anti-price gouging laws and foolish policies by some private vendors, to a massive unprecedented shutdown of a huge portion of the economy with no rational justification. And that will yield untold costs and livelihoods, psychological well-being, even lives. To New York Governor's mysterious, <clears throat> New York Governor Cuomo's mysterious order, forcing nursing homes to become death traps for the elderly. Bertine Schaefer says, it's troubling that I even have to point this out. I feel like I'm living in a massive dysfunctional family where everyone wants to put the blame anywhere but where it actually belongs. On the abusive parent figure of the state. But she says, I'm going to keep on saying it till the rest of you see what's right in front of you. And she says, I promise not to make fun of you when you finally do. Why? Because this doesn't end with COVID-19. One day there will be an even more terrifying threat. And because they've established the precedent of shutting down and controlling our entire lives over this relatively mild one, they will then say, well, whatever you thought of COVID-19, you have to admit that this time we are facing an extremely dangerous threat indeed. This time, you cannot deny that we need the government to step in and save us all. She says, no. We have seen over and over and over again that government stepping in is only ever to make things worse, much, much worse. Humanity cannot afford another lesson in this which is why it's so critical for people to understand this. The lockdowns were not a terrible idea because COVID-19 is not a serious illness. They were a terrible idea because centralized coercive decision-making is always a terrible idea. And we have a whole century of experience to show us this. Now we have this living example right in front of us. So she says, please don't let your emotional attachment to the state blind you to this lesson. We really might not survive having to go through it one more time. Now, I get, for some people, it's going to sound a little conspiratorial, right? Well, what are you trying to say there, Hyde? Are you trying to say that uh, the, the COVID-19 lockdowns were just kind of a test run for the real lockdowns? And I'm not going to say, yeah, absolutely, that's, that's the case. But I have to admit, it's, uh, if it's not, it missed a really good opportunity because <laughs> it certainly gave a strong indication of who would be obedient, who would be the problem children, who would be the ones that would, you know, fall in line without question and not to make any waves, and who would be the ones who would resist. And the funny thing is, this is drawing into the, you know, it's, it's receding into the past and I know we all have short memories. You know, I where did I put my car keys? What what did I uh, say I was going to do last week? I'm I'm as bad as anybody sometimes at remembering stuff. But this is something we can't allow to just you know fade off into the mists of time. And oh yeah, that's right. It was kind of a little unpleasant time. We need to remember not only the lockdown policies and telling businesses and individuals you're essential, you're not. Here, have some government money. No harm will come from this. Let's throw a few more trillion out there and see what happens. That was the mild part of it. The really crazy part was the people who actually found themselves in legal peril 
fined, jailed, ticketed, arrested. Well, you kept your business open when we said you couldn't keep it open. It's crazy. Where I live in Idaho, Sarah Walton Brady is still awaiting trial after being arrested for taking her kids to a playground. And police showed up. Everybody, the playground is off limits. You know, this is this is for your safety. And, of course, you know, the crime scene tape all around, you know, to make sure we knew just how, how desperate and dangerous a time we're living in. And Sarah refused to leave. Now, she wasn't violent or anything. She just, I mean, she was married to a police officer. She wasn't, she wasn't being disrespectful, but she asked the cop, what are you going to do? Are you going to arrest me for having my kids here outside at the park? Well, the answer was yes. And now she has been dragged through the legal system where the process is the punishment. And they just keep putting it off. She's had to hire lawyer after lawyer to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. And the, case, the state just keeps kicking her case down the road. Oh, no, well, we'll get to it. Uh, we got to reschedule. And, you know, in a, in a time where sanity prevails, someone, somewhere along that chain of command, preferably starting with the officer, but if not there, his supervisor or the prosecuting attorney would look at this and say, okay, folks, we lost our heads a bit here. Dismiss the charges. Let it go. And, I, and I'm saying this from the standpoint of what, what justice is being served by continuing to, you know, hold this sword over Sarah Walton Brady's head and, well, you know, you disobeyed this police officer. And, you know, the thing that was most disturbing, it was, it was bad enough to know that, yeah, there, there are cops out there who'll click their heels and, you know, make the arrest no matter what. That's disturbing. Not all of them would do it, but this one did. But the really crazy part was the number of people, and I'm talking average people like you and me, who were just flailing around looking for any reason, grasping for any straw, any reason to believe, but the state is right, and justice is being served, and she had it coming to her, and, you know, then, you know, the, the haters start to show up, and they're just dishing hate on this woman who, you know, has never harmed them, but somehow offends their sense of, well, everybody should do exactly as they're told, and we should all click our heels when the state says, do this or do that. It's that that predatory mob mentality that kicked in that, to me, is the most disturbing part. But in the meantime, here it is, uh, you know, nearly two years later. In fact, it it may have been two years since her arrest. And this woman is still on the hook for legal fees and trying to defend herself. She's had to change lawyers. It's just, it's ridiculous. And it could have been so easily resolved. That's why... We should not let go the harms that were done from the lockdowns. And that's, you know, that's one small example. Well, Brian, who did that really hurt? Well, it definitely hurt the the um, Brady family. <laughs> it hurt them a lot and continues to hurt them. Does it have to happen to you before it takes on legitimacy? Because, see, my understanding of, you know, if you're going to be a principled person, if you're going to stand up for what's right, you stand up for what's right, even if it isn't you, whose ox is being gored. I hope I'm using the right analogy here. All right, we got to take a quick break. By the way, if you want to subscribe to my show notes, please go to thebrianheidshow.com, click on the show notes, scroll down, and there's the big subscribe button. Drop in your email address, and I'll share a copy of my show notes each day I do the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Our show is sponsored by LifesavingFood.com. I would strongly encourage you to go to their website, even provide a convenient link in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. LifesavingFood.com will show you some of the possibilities in terms of food storage, in terms of emergency preparedness, water filters, uh, ways you can cook your food, alternate ways to, to charge your electronic devices with, with solar panels. It's all there. Lots of different choices. The question is, what would help you best be self-reliant in the event of an emergency or some kind of a long-ter- long-term economic downturn or something like that? It's all about just having options. And right now, those options are readily available. I want to take advantage of them. That's lifesavingfood.com. All right, I'm, I'm going to continue to beat the drum here a little bit about how remembering the mistakes made during the lockdowns is not the same thing as just wallowing around in our victimhood. Oh, look at us. We're so, we're so upset that, that government did this. And um, to me, the, the biggest concern now is where where's the accountability? There were people who made decisions and then who stubbornly hung on to those decisions and clung on to their power. How many governors, governors rather, just sat there and reissued extension after extension on their state of emergency, you know, proclamations? Most of them. And that includes, you know, Republican governors. It wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, the, the blue state governors. There were plenty of red state governors that did the same thing. Where's the accountability? And strangely, nobody wants to be accountable. There's all that plausible deniability. The bureaucratic state just, you know, it, everybody has a safe place to hide and nobody really, you know, made any decisions. But a whole lot of people's lives have been upended. And we're just we're just now starting to see some of the longer term effects in our economy, not to mention the mental health effects. So I want to share with you an article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. And I just I love the title. This this sums it up when haircuts were illegal. He says, unless we just decide to forget, historians will look back in astonishment. Healthcare spending declined in a pandemic. People were blocked from their houses of worship. Choirs couldn't sing. Drones flew the skies to ferret out and report house parties. Rental cars were fumigated with something. Crossing a state line meant mandatory two-week quarantines. Dentistry was largely banned. And forget elective surgeries. They were banned. And for months in most parts of the country, from mid-March to about June of 2020, if not longer, getting a haircut was illegal. It was the result of disease panic for sure, but more... Governments decided that they knew the risks better than people and so would not allow people to make their own choices. Multitudes of barbers and stylists sat at home while the hair of the people grew longer and longer. Now, Jeff Tucker says, many friends of mine cut their own. Others found speakeasy barbers. That's that's the route that I went. <laughs> Had a neighbor who was very happy to help me break the law, as it were, by you know cutting my hair without requiring a mask and contact tracing. Jeff Tucker says, one friend swore me to secrecy as he told the tale of a small barn in a remote place in New Jersey. He had heard from another friend to knock on the back door. He tried it and the lady appeared, said nothing, sat him down in a chair and cut. Five minutes later, she said, $25. He left while making sure no one saw him. Now, I just have to say this as an aside. Some people, that may be horrifying to hear. What? That just sounds like so clandestine and, and so, so shady. 
But there's a part of me that's like, yeah, it's kind of cool though. <laughs> I just, I love, I love the spirit of rebellion against uh, tyranny and against despotism. And this, to me, is the epitome of yeah. You know, it was like a speakeasy. You know, here the code word, the code knock is this, and then uh, don't forget the countersign and handshake is this. And all right, <laughs> we'll get you that haircut, but you just you know gotta gotta be careful how we do this. Now. Tucker says other other people asked family members to cut their hair. The Washington Examiner wrote at the time, this virus will surely lead to plenty of unfortunate innovation in hairstyles. Now, of course, of course, the truth of the, of the matter was it wasn't the virus that was doing this. It was the law. The law, or was it merely an enforced CDC recommendation, required six feet of distance between all people. State and local governments declared haircuts non-essential. As a result, commercial haircuts were abolished de facto. So unless you were a politician who somehow managed to find a salon, but then even when they were caught, they apologized and they kept their power. And it was the same in the UK where criminal penalties were applied even long after they became legal again. Now, journalists who wrote about the fiasco, which also covered manicures and pedicures, had to change names to protect the guilty. Jeffrey Tucker says, for my own part, I managed to find a barber and whisper to friends about how to participate. But I recall the fear, the worry, the sneaking around and the strangeness of it all. He says, maybe it all seems silly now, but I can assure you it was not at the time. Texas Governor Greg Abbott developed a good reputation for opening the state earlier than others. But the reality is that he was at the time brutal against salons. One report said in an act of defiance against Governor Greg Abbott's continued shutdown of barbershops and other businesses, two Republican lawmakers sat in a Houston-area salon on Tuesday while getting illegal haircuts. Representative Steve Toth from the Woodlands and Representative Briscoe Kane from Deer Park added fuel to the movement against state and locally mandated restrictions, which are intended to slow the spread of COVID-19. On Friday, a sliver of Texas businesses were allowed to reopen after Governor Greg Abbott announced he would let Texas's stay-at-home order expire. The multi-phase reopening plan currently allows some businesses, like retail stores, restaurants, movie theaters, and malls, to reopen with limited capacity. But businesses including barbershops, hair salons, bars, and gyms can't reopen yet because Abbott said a team of medical experts has advised that it's still unsafe. And then, of course, you remember the Texas salon owner sentenced to jail for seven days. Here's the news story. A Texas salon owner was sentenced to seven days in jail after refusing to shut down despite social distancing restrictions requiring her business remain closed amid the coronavirus outbreak. Dallas Judge Eric Moyer held Salon Alamode owner Shelley Luther in criminal and civil contempt of court for refusing to comply with a restraining order issued in late April, according to court documents. He also ordered the company to pay a fine of $500 for every day the salon violated the court's mandate for the business to stay closed. Luther's planning to appeal the decision. Now, the defiance of the court's order was open, flagrant, and intentional, Moyer wrote. The defendants, although having been given an opportunity to do so, have expressed no contrition, remorse, or regret for their contemptuous action. End quote. Well, boo frickin' who, judge? <laughs> Shelley Luther, by the way, is... Absolutely a hero in this. And again, if there's, a, if there's a bright side to what we learned from the people who are willing to stand up, Sarah Walton Brady is another example, it's that there are still courageous people with backbone who are willing to stand up even to their own harm 
in the face of un, uh, unlawful and uh, unrighteous dominion. I'm grateful for people who are willing to do this. I'm sure it sucks for them, you know, the costs and the shame and, oh, look, they were arrested, marched away in handcuffs and everything, but thank goodness there are people who still have that courage. Jeffrey Tucker says an article in Vox somehow managed to radical, radical or racialize rather the demand that salons open up. He says, I still can't follow the argument, even though I've read the piece three times. It has something to do with the difference between types of hair and privilege and discrimination or something like that. He says, he says, I suspect the thesis is that those who wanted haircuts were racist in some way. But the situation was unsustainable, so states started opening salons, but with crazy rules that made no sense at all. It was virus control made up on the spot. And he posts one of the advisories from Connecticut. Hair salons and barbershops will open at 50% capacity by appointment only with waiting rooms closed. Services offered will be restricted to hairdressing and eyebrows. Nothing that would require removal of a face mask, in other words, beard trimming, lip waxing, etc. Blow drying not permitted. No blow drying, since that so clearly spreads COVID all over and leads to mass death. Blowing COVID everywhere. And 50% capacity was just kind of a classic move that discriminated against small shops in favor of large ones. The larger the shop, the more stations, the more people could fit under a 50% rule. Same was true for restaurants, of course. It was a privilege for large businesses over smaller competitors. He links out. He links to the 10-page advisory the government of New York put out with some examples of what they were saying. But the point here is good luck finding the science behind all this rigmarole. There never was any. Not one life was saved. At least no one has demonstrated that. And in the end, most everyone got COVID anyway. All it was was three months or more of bad hair. So Jeffrey Tucker says it would be worth investigating whether and to what extent these preposterous rules contributed to forcing governments to reopen after disastrous lockdowns. Let's not forget those months when haircuts were illegal. When governments finally allowed them, it didn't allow blow dryers and made customers follow arrows on the floor and use only touchless payment methods. See, that's pandemic control in a nutshell. And he says, what a disgrace this entire period was to science, rationality, human rights, and freedom. We need to remember this. We need to hold it over the heads of those who instigated it so that we never allow it to happen again. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Look, I know for a fact you didn't tune in so I could tell you what to think. You are looking for interesting, relevant, credible information to better understand the world around us. And I'm hoping, fingers crossed, the reason you want to understand the world around you is so that you can make the difference you were born to make. Well, I'm here to help facilitate that. You don't have to believe whatever I'm sharing with you. In fact, I would encourage you, question it, be skeptical, and, you know, be clear and independent in your thinking as you possibly can, because uh, this is this is the time when it counts. 
There's a lot of deception out there. There's a lot of ways that are being implemented to keep us from the truth or at least deflect us from being able to see the truth too clearly. This program exists to help anybody who desires to know the truth, even if it's not always, you know, pleasant. I have some great sponsors who make it possible, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, also at Monticello College, Life Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. All right, where to begin this hour? I think we want to start with, uh, you know, the Supreme Court's been on a lot of people's minds. and uh, It's it's crazy. Uh, uh, someone had quipped on uh, Twitter the other day, well... Let the mostly peaceful protests begin. And I guess last night Antifa and others were out in the streets, you know, rioting and causing problems because it appears that the Supreme Court is lining up to overturn Roe v. Wade. But when it comes to understanding the fervor currently surrounding the Supreme Court, I want to share with you a commentary from Glenn Greenwald. He's breaking down the irrational, misguided discourse surrounding Supreme Court controversies. And he starts by, you know, just spelling out, look, Politico on Monday night published what certainly appears to be a genuine draft decision by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito that would overturn the court's 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade. Now, Alito's draft ruling would decide the pending case of Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization, which concerns the constitutionality of a 2018 Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, except in the case of medical emergency or severe fetal abnormalities. Given existing Supreme Court precedent that abortion can be restricted only after fetal can only be restricted after fetal viability, Mississippi's ban on abortions after the fifteenth week, a point at which the fetus is not yet deemed viable, is constitutionally dubious. Now, to uphold Mississippi's law, as six of the nine justices reportedly wish to do, the court must either find the law is consistent with existing abortion precedent or acknowledge that it conflicts with the existing precedent and then overrule that precedent on the ground that it was wrongly decided. So Alito's draft is written as a majority opinion, suggesting that at least five of the court's justices, a majority, voted after oral argument in Dobbs to overrule Roe on the ground that it was egregiously wrong from the start and deeply damaging. In an extremely rare event for the court, an unknown person with unknown motives leaked the draft opinion to Politico, which justifiably published it. A subsequent leak to CNN on Monday night claimed that the five justices in favor of overruling Roe were Bush 43 appointee Alito, Bush 41 appointee Clarence Thomas, and three Trump appointees, Neil Gorish, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. While Chief Justice Roberts, appointed by Bush 43, is prepared to uphold the constitutionality of Mississippi's abortion law without overruling Roe. Now, Greenwald says draft rulings and even justices' votes sometimes change in the period between the initial vote after oral argument and the issuance of the final decision. Depending on whom you choose to believe, this work is, or this leak rather, is either the work of a liberal justice or clerk designed to engender political pressure on the justices so that at least one abandons their intention to overrule Roe, or it came from a conservative justice or clerk designed to make it very difficult for one of the justices in the majority to switch sides. So whatever the leaker's motives, a decision to overrule this 49-year-old precedent, one of the most controversial in the court's history, would be one of the most significant judicial decisions issued in decades. 
The reaction to this leak, like the reaction to the initial ruling in Roe back in 1973, was intense and strident and will likely only escalate once the ruling is formally issued. Now, Glenn Greenwald says every time there's a controversy reading a Supreme, regarding a Supreme Court ruling, the same set of radical fallacies emerges regarding the role of the court, the Constitution, and the American public and how it's designed to function. Each time the court invalidates a democratically elected law on the ground that it violates a constitutional guarantee, as happened in Roe, those who favor the invalidated law proclaim that something undemocratic has, exp- has transpired, that it's a form of judicial tyranny for five unelected judges to overturn the will of the majority. Conversely, when the court refuses to invalidate a democratically elected law, those who regard that law as pernicious, as an attack on fundamental rights, accuse the court of failing to protect vulnerable, vulnerable individuals. Now, he says this by now reflexive discourse about the Supreme Court ignores its core function. Like the U.S. Constitution itself, the court is designed to be an anti-majoritarian check against the excesses of majoritarian sentiment. The founders wanted to establish a democracy that empowered majorities of citizens to choose their leaders, but also feared that majorities would be inclined to coalesce around unjust laws that would deprive basic rights and thus sought to impose limits on the power of majorities as well. Now, the Federalist Papers are full of discussions about the dangers of majoritarian excesses. The most famous of those is James Madison's Federalist 10, where he warns of factions who are united and actuated by some common impulse of action or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. End quote. One of the primary concerns in designing the new American Republic, if not the chief concern, was how to balance the need to establish rule by the majority, which is democracy, with the equally compelling need to restrain majorities from veering into impassioned, self-interested attacks on the rights of minority. That would be Republican government. As Madison put it, to secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction and at the same time, to preserve the spirit and form of popular government. It is then the great object to which our our inquiries are directed. Indeed, the key difference between a pure democracy and a republic is that the rights of the majority are unrestricted in the former, but they are limited in the latter. The point of the Constitution, and ultimately the Supreme Court, was to establish a republic, not a pure democracy that would place limits on the power of majorities. Thus, the purpose of the Bill of Rights is fundamentally anti-democratic and anti-majoritarian. It bars majorities from enacting laws that infringe on the fundamental rights of minorities. So in the U.S., it doesn't matter if 80 or 90 percent of Americans support a law to restrict free speech or ban the free exercise of a particular religion or imprison someone without due process or subject a particularly despised criminal to cruel and unusual punishment. No such laws can... Such laws can never be validly enacted because the Constitution deprives the majority of the power to engage in such acts regardless of how popular they might be. And at least since the 1803 ruling in Madison v. Marbury, which established the Supreme Court's power of judicial review, in other words, to strike down laws supported by majorities and enacted democratically, if such laws violate the rights guaranteed by the Constitution, The Supreme Court itself is intended to uphold similarly anti-majoritarian and anti-democratic values. Now, when the court strikes down a law that majorities support, 
It may be a form of judicial tyranny if the invalidated law does not violate any actual rights enshrined in the Constitution. But the mere judicial act of invalidating a law supported by a majority of citizens, though frequently condemned as undemocratic, is in fact a fulfillment of one of the court's prime functions in a republic. That's the key. He says whether the court is acting properly or despotically when it strikes down a democratically elected law or otherwise acts contrary to the will of the majority depends only upon one question, whether the law in question violates a right guaranteed by the Constitution. A meaningful assessment of the court's decisions is impossible without reference to that question, yet each time the court acts rather in a controversial case, judgments are applied without any consideration of that core question. Now, he goes into a lot of detail here, and I'm not going to have time to do this, but the idea that kicking this back to the states somehow becomes a blanket ban on abortions is just wrong. Some states are going to very cheerfully offer taxpayer-funded abortions you know, to, to their uh, residents and to, to those who want to avail themselves of it. Other states are going to seek to restrict abortion as much as possible. This is how it should be done. I understand, you know, look, I I agree abortion is a horrific thing. But if you want to address this correctly, you've got to address it within the proper limits and the proper scope of government. This is the kind of decision that should be hashed out at the state level. And if people want to live in a state that offers, you know, unlimited abortion on demand, they can vote with their feet. Likewise, if they want to live in a state that doesn't tolerate that kind of disregard for innocent life, Again, they can vote with their feet. I'll have a link to Glenn Greenwald's article in the show notes. Check them out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has been one of my sponsors long-term. And I just, first of all, I want to thank Heather for uh, for helping me to get the message out. As uncomfortable as this message might make people from time to time, I, you know what? It's I, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be speaking truth as gently and with as much love as I can. But uh, but I'm supposed to be speaking the truth. And, and it's been so helpful to have sponsors like Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I want you to reach out to her if you or someone you know is looking to secure a mortgage. From a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage. If you're in the state of Utah, if you're in the state of Idaho, Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage are there to help you. Call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, even normal people from 10 years ago are likely what would be considered dangerous, violent extremists by the folks in power today. I mean, just look at the parents who showed up at you know the school board meetings and, hey, why are you teaching my kid that uh, we're all racist and that they should hate themselves and everything that came before us? Well, that's the kind of objection only a dangerous, violent extremist would have. And, of course, the Department of Justice goes along with it. What the heck is that? <laughs> But here's the crazy thing. The shift isn't so much that, uh, you know, you and I 
who would have been considered relatively normal even 10 years ago, we have not really changed so much as the political climate has changed. And and some of the things that have been foisted on us, particularly in the last year and a, and a few months, have been remarkable. So J.B. Shirk, writing for AmericanThinker.com, asks, do we draw the line at a U.S. ministry of truth? And I think this is, this is pretty relevant stuff to talk about. He says, the aspiring dictatorship is getting desperate and dangerous. Imagine having complete control over America's corporate news propaganda arm and still feeling vulnerable when it comes to securing the narrative. Imagine having all the big tech censors working for the U.S. intelligence community and the masters of disinformation are still unsure whether they can amply manipulate American opinion. Imagine dedicating a year and a half to persecuting anyone who questions the legitimacy of the 2020 election and learning that more Americans than ever now view that monstrosity as tainted by fraud. Imagine shamelessly spinning the Capitol breach into an attempted coup d'etat only to find that half the country believes the federal government is in the business of imprisoning political protesters. Imagine spending six years framing Donald Trump as a Russian spy, putting him in constant legal jeopardy with a rogue Democrat-aligned special counsel investigation, impeaching him for the financial corruption of his political opponent's quid pro quo schemes in Ukraine, and then impeaching him a second time for the crime of free speech in a congressional operation designed to prevent him from ever running for elective office again, only to learn that he's the runaway favorite to win the 2024 Republican presidential primary and handily beating the current occupant of the White House by six points. When propaganda, domestic espionage, malicious malicious prosecution, blackmail, and an organized terror campaign of burn, loot, murder, mayhem directed against ordinary Americans fails to subdue to the, the, the citizen population, what do aspiring totalitarians do next? That's right, friends. Come on down. It's Ministry of Truth time. J.B. Shirk says the same Department of Homeland Security that has never had any interest in securing the homeland. Come right over, international terrorists and drug runners. The border's wide open. Will now dedicate its malignant resources to censoring so much truth that only the government's lies can be heard. If you can't beat them in the arena of ideas, then beat them into submission with clubs. Cut out their vocal cords, declare them enemies of the state, and round them round up anyone still standing. It's the deep state way. Now he says the whole farce of setting up an all-powerful department of disinformation, whose only purpose will be to spread disinformation, would be downright comical if we were given a moment's rest to laugh in between the Biden regime's outrageous daily attacks on what's left of the Constitution. Shirk says the First Amendment, right at the top, so no future tyrants could miss it, is obviously meaningless if government censors must first approve acceptable speech. By far and without equivocation, the most important speech deserving of protection from the treachery of government overreach is that speech that the government decries as disinformation. He says the First Amendment isn't there for protection of cookie recipes and weather reports, although those are protected too. It's there to make sure that when officials in the federal government betray their oaths and seize illegitimate power for themselves, there are opposing voices that can beat those usurpers down with words before violence becomes inevitable. In truth, the First Amendment is one of ten easy-to-understand, bold-faced instructions from our founding fathers to future generations of Americans that state as simply as possible, 
so that no one has any trouble comprehending their meaning when the republic's very survival is at stake. You future Americans, our founders effectively declared, are a free people with expansive liberty limited only by the few delegated powers explicitly written into the Constitution as exclusive duties of the three branches of the federal government. All other powers belong either to the respective states or to the people. Is that clear? If not, here's a convenient list of government limitations and guaranteed freedoms, although by no means a complete description of Americans' inalienable rights and liberties that you must keep an eye on in order to ensure your government does not descend one day into despotism and tyranny, as all forms of government inevitably do. We will call these the Bill of Rights, and if you catch your government abridging or striking down any of these basic American liberties, then it's time to act. Set forth in item one so you understand their importance to our overall design in protecting you from abusive government are free speech, freedom of the press, free exercise of religion, freedom of assembly, and the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. In case of emergency, in other words, a tyrant has risen to squash your freedom of speech, break glass immediately for you are under attack. Now, on to to item two. Now, that's the First Amendment in a nutshell. It's the first and most important item on a 10-point checklist, hopefully provided to eight Americans in determining when their government has lost all legitimacy. So if the words we write today are illegal tomorrow, then peace and freedom are made illegal too. It's become quite clear that the intelligence deep state dictating U.S. policy is convinced that the Chinese communist model is ideal. The officers of the federal government have sworn oaths to defend the First Amendment, but instead treat free thought and free expression as threats to their power. They do not respect dissent. They don't protect, as is their duty, unsanctioned political protest. They actively work with private companies to censor speech and opinion. They actively work with tech monopolies to manipulate public opinion and propagate blatant lies. They actively spy on the American people. They harass and intimidate those who have the courage of their convictions. They criminalize the constitutional rights of citizens and commit crimes under the color of those constitutional authorities. So he says, let me ask a question. Will there ever be an end to these government trespasses? Is it truly possible for America to dip only a couple of toes into the police state pools without sinking into the depths of despotism? Can the government really cut the Chinese communist baby in half or select only a handful of new totalitarian tools to enforce upon the American people like some a la carte assortment of unconstitutional hors d'oeuvres? Of course not. There are no halvesies with totalitarianism. Once you toss out the First Amendment, the Constitution is soon dead letter law. So he says, if America is to survive, we must not misunderstand this serious moment. Americans must not let their freedom slip away in silence. The Rubicon lies ahead and the federal government must turn around before it's too late. J.B. Shirk says those who would abuse their power can silence any one of us at any time, but they cannot silence all of us at all times. And so his advice is do not go quietly. I don't know if you were aware of this, but the CDC is now revealing that they were, in fact, tracking the movements of Americans via their smartphones. Don't ask me where they got the data for this, but they were tracking people's movements and trying to determine if people were properly following CDC guidelines for social distancing back during the lockdown phase. Almost like they've uh, found a way to implement or to embrace that whole Chinese social credit score 
you know, keeping track on everybody at all times. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com is one of my sponsors. They are located in St. George, Utah. Great news for anybody. Basically within, uh, you know, a two-hour radius of St. George. You probably know someone who is dead serious about uh, sewing or quilting or embroidery. I'm telling you that uh, Sewing and Quilting Center is the place to get whatever it is they need. And, you know, I because I don't sew, you know, I have my own hobbies, but... Uh, I have tended to overlook or at least to downplay just how important a hobby this is to some people. And it's more than just, you know, a pleasant way to pass the time. It's a great skill to have. In fact, I, it's, from a self-reliant standpoint, I still believe having a sewing machine and knowing how to use it could be one of the better investments that a person could make. But the people who do it right now, they aren't doing it so much for self-reliance as just the joy of creating And if you're looking for everything from entry-level machines up to the very best high-end long-arm quilting machines, Sewing and Quilting Center has them all right there in one place. They service what they sell. They'll teach you how to use your machine, and they have all the supplies to go along with as well. Give a click on the link that I provide in my show notes. That's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. So do you care enough about our planet, about saving our planet, to starve yourself to death? Sometimes it feels like that's the choice that we're being offered. John Miltimore has a great article on how destroying food to fight climate change is madness. I picked this up off intellectualtakeout.org. He says, on Earth Day, a 50-year-old environmentalist and photographer from Colorado named Wynne Allen Bruce lit himself on fire outside the U.S. Supreme Court. Friends of Bruce, who subsequently died, said he was worried about climate change. This guy was my friend, said Kriti Kanko, a senior scientist at Environmental Defense Fund. This was not an act of suicide. This is a deeply fearless act of compassion to bring attention to the climate crisis. Interesting. So Bruce's act of immolation is one example of increasing fear of climate change, a fear that is damaging humans in various ways, including a surge in so-called climate anxiety. Now, Miltimore says this fear is also manifesting itself in other ways, including the realm of public policy. Many countries around the world are aggressively pursuing net-zero carbon emission plans designed to mitigate the effects of global warming. So while people tend to think of reducing emissions involving shutting down coal plants or driving more electric vehicles and relying more on solar and wind power, each of these comes with environmental and economic costs, and these are not the only policies on the table. In fact, he says increasingly governments are targeting a different emission source, food, livestock specifically. And the reasons for this are not hard to find. No less an authority than the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, notes that about one-third of climate warming from greenhouse gases stems from human-caused emissions of methane. While CO2 gets more attention, the EPA notes that methane is actually a more potent greenhouse gas, trapping about 30 times as much heat as CO2 over a century. Now a new law in Northern Ireland sets a target of zero net emissions by 2050, and the BBC reports the legislation improves a proposed 46% reduction in methane emissions. Since about a third of human-caused methane gases come from livestock, 
Northern Ireland is looking at a huge reduction of farm animals, especially sheep and cattle, to meet that goal. The Guardian recently reported Northern Ireland will need to lose more than a million sheep and cattle to meet its new legally binding climate emissions targets. So specifically, according to estimates from the Ulster Farmers Union, some 500,000 cattle and roughly 700,000 sheep would have to be lost in order for Northern Ireland to meet the new climate targets. While the pig and poultry sectors will also need to be cut to meet emissions targets, climate officials said these sectors are less harmful to the environment than red meat livestock. So if you look at the evidence on the life cycle of greenhouse gas emissions, the red meat livestock sources, beef, dairy, sheep, have the highest emissions because they're ruminant and they have high methane emissions. That's Iwa Kamiatwitz, the uh, head of land use mitigations team at Climate Change Committee. This is what uh, Iwa told the, the paper. Chris Stark, CCC executive, told The Guardian that a switch to arable farming would likely be necessary to maintain food production levels. Now, John Miltimore says what's happening in Northern Ireland is part of a much larger push to wean humans off red meat, particularly beef, which humans consume to the tune of 350 million tons each year. Many people, including Microsoft founder Bill Gates, have argued nations have a responsibility to transition off beef for environmental reasons. Gates said, I do think all rich countries should move to 100% synthetic beef. In an interview with MIT Technology Review last year, he says you can get used to the taste difference, and the claim is they're going to make it taste even better over time. Now, Gates doesn't really explain how this transition should occur, but we're beginning to see. Miltimore says while there's no question that global temperatures are rising 14% per decade on average, people should find the efforts by central planners to curb climate change more alarming than rising temps. Such policies have the earmarks of failed collectivist programs of the past, such as FDR's porcine slaughter of the innocents, which saw millions of pigs and sows destroyed while people were going hungry, all in an attempt to keep prices high. FDR's mad program was child's play, however, compared to Chairman Mao, who had plans to revolutionize China's agricultural sector with his great leap forward. Well, things didn't go as planned, and it turned out food production was more complex than Mao anticipated. According to Britannica Online, the inefficiency of the communes and the large-scale diversion of farm labor into small-scale industry disrupted China's agriculture seriously, and three consecutive years of natural calamities added to what quickly turned into a national disaster. In all, about 20 million people were estimated to have died of starvation between 1959 and 1962. Now John Miltimore says, did you catch that? 20 million people died under Mao's collectivist effort. Nor was this the first man-made famine created by socialists. In 1932 and 1933, millions of Ukrainians died in a famine engineered by the Soviet Union. Historian Andrea Graziosi, a professor at University of Naples, says in the case of the Holodomor, this was the first genocide that was methodically planned out and perpetrated by depriving the very people who were producers of food of their nourishment. The genocide, Graziosi notes, was not just tragic, but it was ironic in that it took place in a region globally recognized as the breadbasket of Europe. Now, these accounts remind us of a dark, disturbing reality highlighted by economist Thomas Sowell. Many of the greatest disasters of our time have been created by experts. In his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, economist F.A. Hayek explained that such disasters stem from the lack of humility among central planners. 
about the knowledge or lack thereof they possess in their their fatal striving to control society. Above all else, Hayek said the role of economics is to tamper such grand plans. Hayek observed in The Fatal Conceit, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to humans how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. So John Miltimore says attempting to curb climate change by destroying food supplies may not appear quite as crazy as lighting oneself on fire in front of the Supreme Court to protest a lack of government action on climate change. But it may ultimately prove to be even more deadly. I know I harp on the, the food supply chain, but this is, this is one of the reasons why I'm so deeply concerned about this. If there are people or organizations or powers that be that are doing their best to either squeeze off or to just throttle back on the production of food, and we're seeing that there are many ways in which that could be done. High fuel costs can be part of it. Lack of fertilizer is part of it. How about... Uh, John Deere disabling tractors. I mean, if they could do it with Russian tractors that had been appropriated by Russia or with Ukrainian tractors appropriated by Russia, you know, if they can shut those things down remotely, you know, maybe maybe John Deere is woke enough that if the U.S. government said we need you to shut down all the farmers' tractors, you know, at least the John Deere ones aren't going to be working. I know. It's, Brian, is your imagination running away with you? It's possible. I could be dead wrong about this. But again, historically looking at those times where people in power sought control over food supplies, it doesn't end well. And it most certainly can be weaponized to use it as a tool of control or leverage to control populations. Okay, so what does that mean for you and me? All right, well, without, uh, without getting too far off in the weeds, let me just make this suggestion. Maybe we should be preparing individually to have some food set aside, and I would say, like, set the, set the target of the next six months. How would you prepare if you knew that in six months food was going to be, A, more expensive than it had ever been before, or B, harder to find than it had ever been in your lifetime? What are the things you would stock up on? What kind of skills would you want to learn? You know, I mean, you know, I'm not talking about, uh, boy, this sounds like drudgery. We're going to all be out uh, digging under rocks for grubs to eat. I'm talking more about what if you had to learn how to make your own butter, make your own cheese, grow your own foods. You and I still have time to better our situation in terms of our self-reliance. And because of all the tinkering with the food supply, as well as, uh, you know, the cost of fuel, I'm thinking it just might not be a bad idea to, to have a plan B if you get my drift. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. It was so fun to have Spencer Worthington from HSLAmmo.com on the program yesterday. If you didn't get a chance to check it out, look up the show for May 3rd, and you can hear Spencer talk about the joy of frugality. And if you're, if you're interested in supporting uh, him as a sponsor, you could also uh, you know consider going to HSLAmmo.com and picking up some ammunition. He makes high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. The website is linked right there in my show notes. He's just a great guy. we got to get him back on the show again. 
it's just it i i'm inspired by just how passionate spencer is about uh, helping people in ways other than just simply making ammunition for them he he really is one of the best people i know well you know we have a pretty interesting set of priorities as a society and i want to share this article from jeff deist who is with the uh, mises dot uh, org the the mises institute on why social issues dominate. And he has a point here that I think is really worth considering. He says, inflation in the U.S. is at 40-year highs, while interest rates on 10-year Treasury notes just hit 3%, signaling trouble for home buyers. Truck drivers pay more than $1,000 to fill their rigs with $5 per gallon diesel to deliver your increasingly expensive groceries and Amazon packages. Crime and homelessness skyrocket in large cities, exacerbated by virulent opioids like fentanyl and crocodile. And America's proxy war with Ukraine, with Russia in Ukraine, gives rise to the most serious threats of nuclear strikes against the West since the 1960s. Yet so-called social issues, from abortion to critical race theory to teaching gender identity in elementary schools, dominate our politics and media. Virtually every voter has a strong opinion on these issues and pays far more attention to them than, say, the M2 money supply or the next Fed Open Market Committee meeting though the latter could have far greater impact on that voter's life and finances. This is to say nothing of, you know, the fact that they're spending money like it's going out of style. Is this really helping us? That $33 billion package we just sent to uh, Ukraine, is that that really to help the American taxpayers? Is that looking out for the interests of the American people, or is that just, you know, a down payment on World War III? Hmm. Well, Jeff Deist says, why is it that our attention is more wrapped up in social issues? And the short answer is... The Supreme Court. He talks about how earlier this week brought news that a leaked draft opinion, allegedly from Supreme Court Associate Justice Samuel Alito, portends the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This brought forth paroxysms of anger and fear across the media spectrum, especially on social platforms like Twitter. Protesters quickly arrived at the newly fenced-off court building, and the commentariat began enumerating the predictable dire threats for the future of women posed by a Trumpian right-wing court. Now, Jeff Deist points out, we don't see these outbursts when Congress spends $5 trillion on stimulus or when the Fed quadruples its balance sheet, to put it mildly, or even when gas prices double. He says, acting wildly beyond its constitutional parameters, the court has become the de facto super legislature for all 50 states. The political class pretends otherwise, but the stridency of its denunciations against conservative court nominees and its slavish support for progressive nominees demonstrates the irretrievably political nature of granting a handful of justices such power over the lives of 330 million people. In such a top-down, winner-take-all environment, the stakes become needlessly high and politicized in the nastiest ways imaginable. So, of course, presidential elections and the resulting makeup of the court become matters of life and death for the true believers whose sense of identity is rooted in the social issues ruled upon by the court. And he says this happens for two primary reasons. First, so-called judicial review created a superpower to determine the constitutionality of any law at any level of government, a superpower nowhere to be found in Article 3 of the Constitution. This effectively grants the court potential jurisdiction over every last state or local law down to the most minute edicts that ought to be none of the federal government's business. Jeff Deist says this is an absurd result and a gross abuse of the Constitution's shared powers under a federalist system. 
Even if one argues the court generally does not abuse this power to boss around states, it always could and sometimes does. Second, he says specious interpretations of the 14th Amendment and the resulting incorporation doctrine effectively threw a net of federal laws, rules, and court decisions over all 50 states without their consent. Nobody at the time the amendment passed, especially not at the various ratifying state legislators, could have imagined the opaque language of the amendment would cause the high court to issue a series of rulings turning states into glorified federal counties. Rather than incorporate certain provisions of a federal constitution into state law, why not do so expressly? For example, why not simply rewrite the First Amendment to say neither Congress, the various states, nor any subdivision of the various states shall make any law respecting? He says, we all know why. This kind of express language would have been a complete political non-starter at the time. Even the northern states still wanted and demanded far more independence from the federal government during the Reconstruction era. Thus, we are left with a permanent injury to federalism and the Tenth Amendment, an injury that causes social issues to play a vastly outsized role in American politics. Now, this is not to say the Supreme Court has had less impact on economic matters before, given, for example, its interpretations of the Commerce Clause and absurd rulings during the Lochner era. But people don't flood the steps of the Supreme Court to protest minimum wage laws or scream obscenities at justices over cases of zoning in the city of New London, Connecticut. In short, he says, there is nothing remotely suggesting a right to abortion in the text of the Constitution, even under the most tortured interpretation. Thus, it is purely a matter for states, falling under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Overturning Roe doesn't change a single abortion law in a single state, and it does not prevent any state legislature from loosening abortion restrictions in reaction. It simply revokes jurisdiction over the issue from federal courts. This ought, to be an amenable, this ought to be an amenable solution for everyone. Jeff Deisted tweeted, It's okay, we don't need one abortion rule for all 50 states. Without the Supreme Court's invented jurisdiction, progressives in blue states can have unrestricted taxpayer-funded abortion on demand at any stage of pregnancy. And yet progressives never take this deal. Jeff Deist says mass democracy under shifting rules often determined by nine politicized judges is not a prescription for harmony and goodwill among 330 million very diverse Americans. Those millions don't much agree about guns, God, abortion, and plenty more. But they don't have to agree. In a post-liberal and post-good-faith environment, aggressive federalism and realistic discussions of political secession are the obvious path forward. He says, if you claim to love your fellow American citizens, unyoke them from the federal superstate and demand the same for yourself. The universalist, totalizing impulse which resulted in the dramatic centralization of state power through the 20th century must be reversed in the 21st. The other way lies political strife and much worse. I think that's one of the more reasonable takes I've seen on this. And it's, isn't it interesting? You know, it's the social issues that get people mobilized. People are in the streets protesting. I mean, they're, they're flat out rioting in Seattle, in Portland, in Los Angeles. Oh, Antifa was out there flexing as hard as they could. I wonder why people don't get more upset about uh, other things, you know, that that the federal government is claiming the power to impose on us. And by the way, getting out in the streets and being upset, probably not the most effective way to to register your displeasure. As I, I'm going to suggest something that's that's far more radical, but to me is also far more workable, and that is 
if you uh, if you run into a conflict with a particular policy, whether it be the vax mandate or or something else, withdraw your consent. You understand what I'm saying? Simply go your own way, turn your back on it, and you know as I'm I'm saying this with the understanding as long as what we're talking about is peaceful. Live like a free individual, regardless of what, you know, that, uh, that federal mandate or even, even state or local mandate may say. Well, Brian, you sound like you're telling everybody to be a law unto themselves. Let me rephrase that slightly differently then. What I'm saying is govern yourself. Don't wait for somebody else in a position of authority at any level to tell you this is what you can and cannot do. I trust you understand the difference between right and wrong. I mean, if you don't, you know, please get the help that you need. But most of us can figure out right versus wrong. Most of us can understand what is peaceful versus what is not peaceful behavior. But the real key is understand what your rights are. And when you understand, this is going to take some homework, by the way. I mean, can you enumerate what a natural right is? Can you tell people what that would, would look like? And if the answer is, well, I'm not sure. Okay, that's great. Now you know that you have some homework to do. But once you know what your rights are, you claim those rights, you use them, you defend them, and you stop asking permission. Please, sir, may I exercise my God-given rights? You don't have to be out there making a big political statement out of your life. You just have to be willing to live like a free individual, and that means sometimes you know when to say no. You know when to ignore government at uh, whatever level. And you can trust yourself to do this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.